and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by The Athletic. This is a three-part episode. The first part, we've got Jay King here. The second part, we have Nikias Duncan that I've already recorded talking about the Miami Heat and the Milwaukee Bucks series. The third part, Reed Forgrave and I are talking about his new book, Love, Zach, and some of the uh, dissonance that goes on in one's brain when watching football. But first, I've got the kid here, Jay King. What is going on, dude? Not a whole lot, man. Just basketball. That's about it. So you kind of brought this up to me before we started recording, and I think it's fascinating, so I just kind of stopped you uh, right in the middle of what you wanted to say. But you brought up the idea of covering a basketball team from, what, it's like 2,000 miles from Boston to Orlando, right? Like you're covering a team essentially remotely, 2000 miles away and there are some inherent difficulties that come up when you're doing that how has that process been for you it's been so weird and i never realized how much you actually got from just being there with a team every day like after a practice you can see a player working with a coach on a certain skill or you can see or if if you hear something from one of the press conferences you can go over and ask the coach about it if or like you can just grab a player one-on-one I haven't had one-on-one interview with a Celtics player since the playoffs started and so all the the unique insight that I used to gather from just being around the team I don't have that anymore and so it's really weird to to kind of step away and and now do this in a totally different fashion than I did before. So it, it's been a challenge, but it, I mean, obviously it, it's what has to be. And you just try to make the best of it. Well, I think it's working because the coverage has been great uh, from every angle in the series, like between you and Jared you. and between Blake and Eric covering Toronto. Like, yeah, they're awesome, man. Yeah, like the coverage has been fantastic. And thank you. I think that it's worth kind of just moving into the series now, which is like by far my favorite series that we've seen in the playoffs so far, because I love this series. It's so great. And it's in part because these are two rosters that have been constructed in an incredibly modern fashion with a ton of wings, a ton of defensive versatility, uh, and a ton of just very interesting roster constructions that can be put on the floor. But also because these two coaches are fucking geniuses. Like, between Nick Nurse and Brad Stevens, these two guys are fucking ridiculous in terms of the different shit they're throwing out there on the court and making the other team adjust to it. Yeah, it's it's, that part of it is really fun because, they, like you said, they're they're two of the most flexible teams in the league, and the coaches take advantage of that. And, like, like Stevens going to Grant Williams at center in game four after they gave up three threes in a row, it was like... I don't know if he should have done that, but it's one of the things that, that he can do because he wants to go switch everything and take away the three-point arc, and they they did their defense tighten up from then on. Um, but just stuff like that, these two coaches, they're innovative. Uh, they embrace the versatility of their teams, and and these teams are just grimy too, which is my favorite part of this series. Yeah. Just just so many competitive dudes. Like Kyle Lowry and Marcus Smart in the same playoff series is just – so fascinating just flopping after flopping after flopping and but also they play harder than anyone right and so it's fun to watch right like these aren't like soft dudes just like flopping all over the place 
Like they oh, yeah, are dude. like tough motherfuckers who are going out there <laughs> trying to do anything that they can to win. And like part of me respects that. Like, look, I, I don't want to see flopping as much as anyone in part because the referees are often dumb enough to fall for it. Right. Yeah. But fuck, man, like there's part of me that just respects the idea that these dudes are just so competitive that they're trying to gain any little advantage that they can. And I feel like it's not just regular flops like like Kyle Lowry works as hard as anyone for his flops, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like he, he will literally run straight into an elbow. Yep. Just just to try to draw an offensive foul like that is his goal is running face first into an elbow. So they're, well, yeah, they're not smart. Flops. Like that dude ran f- straight into Pascal Siakam <laughs> in transition. What was that in game two or three? And then just launched himself <laughs> to the ground. <laughs> that was the most amazing flop I think I've seen in like the last five years of the NBA. It, it was great. I would have been mad if I were him about getting fined though. The NBA doesn't even fine anyone for flopping anymore, but they decided to find that. It was like, Marcus... Come yeah, on, man. <laughs> just tone it, tone it down a little. You cannot run five steps out of your way to then flop. Oh, my God. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about in this series is Kemba Walker and the fact that I think he's kind of going to be the guy for Boston yep. to win this series. I think so, too. And the reason for that is that for some reason, Nick Nurse keeps putting Mark Gasol out on the court. And every time that Kemba Walker or Jason Tatum, frankly, runs a pick and roll with Daniel Tice at the five with Marcus Gasol on the court, they don't always score off of it, but 90% of the time they're creating an open shot. And it's because either Mark is so aggressively dropping in coverage that Kemba Walker can just knock down a three-pointer off of a pull-up that he's dribbling directly into or he's someone like Jason Tatum is just driving by and can blow by Marcus all like there have been so many times like there was one time where if I remember correctly Marcus Smart uh, took a ball screen from I think it was Daniel Tice it might have been Grant Williams in game four where instead of taking the ball screen he rejected it and Mark was just, like, way out of position and then just couldn't even react. And Marcus just finished, like, an easy layup. I think it was in the fourth quarter. And it was just like, why is Nick Nurse continuing down this road of Mark Gasol, even though Boston was missing threes in that game, they were still getting open shots, and it just doesn't seem tenable to me. It's like at some point in Game 5, I think Boston is going to win Game 5 because they're just going to revert to the mean in making three-pointers. Like, there, there wasn't really an adjustment there from Nick Nurse in the way that we've come to expect adjustments from Nick Nurse, I guess. Yeah, and I, I think to your about Kemba being the guy, I just think it's really tough for Marcus All and Serge Ibaka to just keep up with him. And we saw this on what should have been the game-winning play of Game 3. The Raptors tried to double Kemba. Like, they were hell-bent on getting the ball out of his hands, and he, he just wouldn't accept that they were going to double-team him. And he just drove by Gasol, found Daniel Tice for what should have been a game-winning, basically game-series-winning assist. Obviously, that that didn't exactly work out for the Celtics. But but I, I just think his speed for those two guys, um, Ibaka used to be a great athlete, is a little creakier now. Gasol used to be the defensive player of the year, isn't 
as mobile as it used to be. And Kemba is just lightning fast. I, I, I've been impressed by Kemba because I thought the play, the lack of playoff experience would matter. But I kind of think that just playing junk defenses when he was in Charlotte and having nobody else around him, that just kind of prepared him for it the same way that, that the playoffs would. Because he's seen double teams. He's seen triple teams. He's seen everything a defense could throw at him. So playoff defenses, he's like, yeah, I've seen this crap before. Well, that and he's just never been scared by the moment yeah, that, before. that too. Like, you can go back to UConn, like, where he fucking broke Gary McGee's ankles. I remember watching that live. <laughs> I was just like, Jesus Christ. That whole run was incredible. That, like, Gary McGee is a household name uh, in parts of the Northeast because Kemba Walker broke him. Yep. Everyone remembers that name just for that. It was too bad because he was pretty good. Yeah, like, he was fine. He was a seven-footer. Like, look, I'm from Pittsburgh. Like, I, I wanted to root for Gary McGee, but God damn, Kemba, that was ridiculous. <laughs> and then he goes and wins an NCAA title, and, you know, he hasn't been great in the playoffs, you know, previously with Charlotte. I wasn't really worried about it from that perspective. I was more worried about it from, A, this guy has, questionable, has like, a questionable knee coming into the bubble, theoretically. Yeah. And, B... What would Boston do to hide him defensively? Because as we've seen so many times, even though Kemba works his ass off defensively, he is something of a mismatch, a guy that like teams hunt in terms of mismatches because he is relatively skinny and he doesn't have great length to contest. Boston has done a great job of pre-switching beforehand to make sure that Kemba doesn't get involved in these like crazy screening actions. That stuff is fun to watch, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. And uh, Brad's always been good at that. He, his teams have always been good at like the scramble switches on the fly. You, if you can remember back to the Chicago series when Isaiah Thomas was there, Chicago was desperate to get Isaiah Thomas switched on to Jimmy Butler, and the Celtics would like they'd switch Isaiah from between like three or four guys in the, the course of one play, all to get him out of the Jimmy Butler action. And so that that's kind of with Kemba popped up again obviously and and Siakam they're trying to get Siakam on him and the Celtics just don't want to allow that yeah and they've done a really great job of stopping it from happening too because there's one thing to like not want it but it's a second thing to stop it from happening look like Kemba gets caught on an island occasionally but like for the most part it's been really hard for Toronto to exploit that matchup and just you mix that with the offense and the fact that the knee looks good to me, I mean, you probably have more insight into that than I do. But like, Kemba is playing exceptionally well in the playoffs outside of Game Four, where he was just kind of yep. fine. Yeah, and he he took Game Four personally, and uh, just kind of said, "I need to get more than nine shots." And look, Toronto is—they fly around and they are really, really loading up on Tatum and Kemba. The amount of pressure those guys see, especially when the bench guys, Grant Williams. Brad Wanamaker, Shemi Ojale are on the court is just intense. And they're forcing the ball out of those guys' hands. I do think, like like you said, some of it will just come down to they need to make threes. Jalen Brown was wide open in the corner a whole bunch of times and and didn't punish Toronto for that. Kemba, Kemba and Tatum, they're going to keep making those passes, and they, the Celtics have to reward them. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's not like – Toronto is doing anything crazy in terms of lineups like they've actually kind of shortened their bench a little bit 
And How do those guys keep playing, man? Like, Lowry's playing like 45, 46 minutes a game. It's crazy. Well, yeah, in comparison to what Mike Budenholzer's doing, it's almost like these yeah. guys, once they get adrenaline going, like, they're elite-level athletes. They'll figure it out on some level at least. Yeah. Um, Lowry plays such hard minutes, though. Like, you do does. wonder if, if, if even though he's so durable and so tough and obviously has energy for days, you wonder if that'll catch up to them at the end of the series. So... Coming into the series, I thought Toronto would win it because I thought that their defensive versatility would be good enough to slow down the shot makers that Boston has. It's 2-2 now, and I think I would actually reverse course on this. Mm -hmm. I think I would still pick Boston to win this series, even though Toronto has won the last two games. And the reason that I say that is because I still think, even though they missed a ton of shots in Game 4, they're getting easier offense than Toronto is. Toronto is still... I don't want to say that they're having to struggle for it. Like, they've done a really good job of exploiting different mismatches, right? Like, in Game 4, Pascal Siakam, like, just kind of demolished Jalen, right? Like, he took him into the pill into the post on mismatches and defensively he did a good job contesting Jalen Jalen missed some open shots and I don't know like maybe he just that knocked him like five percent off of his normal uh like engagement level I I don't know what happened with Jalen there he was in a funk man (laughs) yeah like it happens right like it's not a statement on Jalen it just is a reality of playing basketball at the highest level right yeah so I think I would still pick Boston to win this series because their shot generation is seeming to come more fluidly. Having said that, one thing that you brought up is really interesting. A lot of those open shots are coming to guys like Shimmy Ojale. Yeah. And that's definitely by design from Toronto. They're selling out to stop and help on to Jason, so Jason has to kick out and hit a shimmy ojale, right? So I guess trying to like meld those two things together where do I trust Shemi Ojale and Grant Williams and Brad Wanamaker and you know even to an extent like Daniel Tice, like do I trust them to make these shots that are going to be available to them? Or do I trust Toronto getting more shots for their best players, but tougher shots for their best players. I mean, how do you think that that kind of, that kind of change mixes? Because it's two drastically different things that are happening on opposite sides of the court. It's so fun to watch Fred Van Vliet relocate after pick and roll. Like that dude just keeps moving and moving. It's got to be such a pain to guard him. Yeah. I I think, for, like looking at the stats of game four obviously everyone saw the seven for 35 for the celtics their, their worst shooting three-point shooting percentage of the entire season i think w- what stood out to me as much as that kemba walker and jason tatum each only got six three-point attempts yep. those guys are normally at eight or greater and a lot of the times if, if they get going those guys can be in the double digits and so Toronto is really, really taking taking those shots away. I, I think if, as the Celtics look at game four, one of the things they have to do is get Tatum especially in better positions. Like he needs to shoot 10 threes. 
you need to find ways to get him 10 threes. And I thought he had a good game four, but it was mostly, I felt, on Toronto's terms. Like, they made him do stuff that he doesn't normally do. And he did it. And he, he was tough, and he got to his spots, and he still had a pretty effective game. But but the Celtics need to get him to the his three-point point shots, um, and Kemba, too, somehow. And I, I think Kemba will be fine. Like, Kemba, like I said, in this series, they just – those bigs aren't mobile enough, I think, to stay with him. And yep. that's why I think he's, he's going to be the guy for Boston. And if you look at their offensive numbers in the first three games, especially with Kemba on the court, they were playing at league-best offensive rating with him on the court. So they're when he's on the court, they've just been humming. And game four obviously was a little different, but I think that was mostly because Jalen uh, missed threes. And, again, it's like that's one of the things that make the playoffs great, right? Like, over the long run, Jalen Brown will make threes, but if he if he starts to doubt himself a little bit, like the Raptors shade off him a little bit more, and all of a sudden it's tougher for Kemba, it's tougher for Tatum, and so I I think it, it's going to be big for Jalen to bounce back. And on the other side of it, you know, Sam Amick at our site wrote a story on Sunday, I believe it was kind of broaching the question of is Kyle Lowry a Hall of Famer and I think this is the series where that gets determined just straight up because so much of what Toronto is doing is going to result in Kyle Lowry ending up having to make contested shots on some level and he is been hit or miss in that regard in his career throughout the playoffs last year he was a great floor general and he was absolutely exceptional and his overall game in the playoffs has never been bad and I think it's honestly gone pretty drastically underrated throughout the course of his career because of the shooting questions that have arisen at times in the playoffs this is a series where he's gonna have to make shots and if he makes them this they can win this series and if they win this series i think they beat miami just straight up like i I think that that's this as we'll talk about in the next segment that i've already recorded with nikaias duncan like i think that's the matchup personally that toronto wants and that miami probably wants the least because they the way that toronto defends is so capable of taking over uh, a lot of this like off-ball action um that Miami likes to run with like Duncan Robinson and Goron and these dribble handoffs that Bam Adebayo runs like they, they can slow that down in a way that like other teams just can't because of their defensive versatility. So I think that they will go. I think the winner of the series is probably going to go to the finals. I think that these are the two best teams left in the East. And if they go to the finals a year after Kawhi Leonard leaves and they do it on Kyle Lowry's back because he takes them there. Fuck, man, it's going to be hard to come up with an argument against that guy, I think. He's really building a good Hall of Fame argument. When you look at the amount of all-star game appearances he's piling up, what is he at, six now? I believe that's correct. He's a, a champion. Like, and, and the Basketball Hall of Fame isn't the most strict. <laughs> <laughs> like, there are some people in there that you kind of shake your head, like Mitch Richmond for one um shout out to mitch i loved watching him play but just it's a weird not one. the first first guy that comes to your mind when you think of the the basketball hall of fame um but yeah i think 
And I think to some extent the the Raptors supporting cast was underrated because Kawhi was there. Yeah. Like like those other dudes are really good. <laughs> Lowry, Lowry especially. Lowry is one of my favorite players to watch. Van Vliet is too. But Lowry, like he just does every single thing you want a player to do. Like like he's got to be the one of the best players to coach because he makes every right rotation. He makes every right extra pass. When the Raptors really needed it in game three, he he just decided, I'm going to get to the paint, and I'm going to, the Celtics, I'm going to move the whatever Celtics there with my gigantic butt. And and he really put them on his back. I thought he he brought, he gave them belief in game two, obviously before the OG and Anobi shot, but but he he kind of set them back on the right path. And like like Fred Van Vliet said in, in Sam Amick's piece, Celtics fucked up. Like that yeah. that series was over if they just got a stop with point five seconds left. It was over and now they're in a dog fight. This is a real, real dog fight that I think is gonna go seven games and I love it that it's gonna go at least yeah, six it's... games, probably seven games, because these two teams are as close as they are. Jay do you have any other hot takes you want to get off your chest before we get out of here? I uh, I've got no no Celtics hot takes. I, I was appalled by Russell Westbrook though. I, I, I will say that <laughs> appalled by the way Russell Westbrook played basketball in Game Two. Please expound. And that's not a hot take at all. I, I want I want I want to hear about how appalled you were. I want to hear this. Well, here's the thing. I have always been a Russell Westbrook hater. Like his play style has always irritated me. I've always thought he just did too much dumb stuff for a truly elite player, which he was for a long time. This year he won me over. For for three months, I became a huge Russell Westbrook fan. Like I was annoying my brothers every day. Like man, did you see what Russ did tonight? Like Russ, Russ has turned into like a center. He, he's embracing all his good qualities, and then he gets to the playoffs, and he just forgets it all, man. <laughs> he just forgot it all. That was a puke-inducing game, too, that he played. The turnovers, the the air ball. He, he really, like... threes. He, yeah. It's just like, Russ, you, you ironed all this stuff out of your game this year. You finally embraced everything that makes you awesome. And then he's got to get back to that. And it's really tough against the Lakers because they have so much size and length inside. But, man, man, Russ, Russ, the sw- the Russ swing is crazy. It's such a roller coaster. Oh, my God. I love it so much. That series is really fun. I'll talk about it on the podcast on Wednesday or Thursday. Jay, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what you've got coming up. Yeah. Find my work at by J King uh, on Twitter. Find my work at the Athletic. I've got uh, whatever Game Five coverage comes out tonight. Some something I'll write from afar with no inside access to players. <laughs> <laughs> but appreciate you having me on, man. That's been J King. Uh, I've got a few advertisements to get off here, and then we're gonna get to Nikias Duncan, and then after him, Reed Forgrave. <laughs> Buff.
before we get to Nikias Duncan and Reed Forgrave, I've got a few advertisements for you. Now's the time to celebrate. Football is finally back, and DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports, has millions of reasons why you should be excited to kick off the football season. DraftKings is giving new users a free shot at $1 million. Uh, that's the top prize in their Thursday night football single game showdown contest. There's going to be a total of $3 million up for grabs in this Thursday night's contest. Getting in on it is easy. All you have to do is download DraftKings using the promo code MAYS, M-A-Y-S. Draft six players from the season opener. Stay under the salary cap and see how your team stacks up against the competition. So head to the app now and start making it rain. Plus, new users who sign up today on DraftKings using that code MAZE will receive a free shot at the $1 million top prize with your first deposit. Nothing adds to the sweat of watching a game like having a shot at a million-dollar payday. Download the DraftKings app now and use that code MAZE for a limited time. New users can get a free shot at the $1 million top prize and $3 million in total prizes. Don't miss this extra special week one bonus. Enter code MAZE to get a free shot at the $1 million top prize with your first deposit. That's code MAZE only at DraftKings.com. Make it rain. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. All right, a third advertisement today is for Roman. Talking about erectile dysfunction is not easy. Usually men just brush it off or blame themselves, saying something like they lost their mojo or they avoid it altogether with excuses like they had a long day at work. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about it with a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication. It's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. A healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication's appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AthleticNBA and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AthleticNBA today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. That's GetRoman.com slash athletic nba get roman.com slash athletic nba now let's get into the second part of the pod all right we're here now with nikias duncan from the basketball news nikias what's going on man Nothing much, man. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, as a long-time listener of the pod, this is kind of surreal for me. So thank you for having me on. <laughs> Dude, I've actually been thinking about asking you to come on for a little while now. But the reason that 
now stood out as a great time was because you know your specialty is kind of writing about the Miami Heat and what we've seen from the Heat so far has been so much fun to kind of break down you've written a couple of really great things at the basketball news which is your new website that you work for and I just kind of thought this was the perfect time to get you on and get you on for the first time. We're going to do it again, dude. Yes, sir. I'm ready for it. So I kind of just want to get what your initial thoughts were going into the series. If I remember correctly, I think I saw that you picked the Miami Heat to win this series in six games. I didn't make like an actual prediction, but I texted a couple of people that work for teams that, you know, kind of asked me what my thoughts were on series. I think I said like the Raptors in six or seven. I said the Lakers in six. I said the Clippers in five. And then I said Miami in seven. And that kind of got pushback from people because they looked at how successful Milwaukee was in the regular season and figured that that first series against Orlando was just kind of them figuring things out and getting things together. I had more concerns, I guess, than that. And those concerns have been borne out in this series. I mean, what were your kind of, what, what was your initial thought heading into this? Um, my initial thought heading into the series is that Miami had a shot. Um, the biggest thing I've been looking at with Milwaukee is the way that they play defense. They play, I mean, they obviously play that drop, but they play such an aggressive drop that I, it could have opened up a lot of the things that Miami likes to do offensively. So from there, I felt like the Heat had a puncher's chance. And then once I saw how Miami kind of dispatched Indiana and how Orlando, particularly the Chris Middleton, struggled against Orlando, and Orlando was without their best two or three defenders, my my thinking initially shifted to, well, if he's struggling against James Ennis and he's missing shots, if he has to see 34, 36 minutes of Jimmy Butler or Andre Godala combined with the wall that Miami's already going to build against Giannis, I think Milwaukee's going to have some issues in the half court. And that's kind of where their biggest question mark has been all year anyway. So I felt like the Heat really had a, a puncher's chance in this thing. And once I started going back into more film, because I wrote a preview um, before the series started, kind of looking at what Heat could do to beat them. Um, going through those regular season matchups, you always tend to take those with a grain of salt. But there are a lot of schematic things, uh, particularly like the way the Heat, uh, their dribble handoffs, the way they're using not just pick and rolls, but going into kind of those double drag looks, kind of flowing out of pistol stuff on the wings, really attacking Milwaukee's drop. I felt like they had a chance to get downhill for some rotations, and then that just opens up things for their shooters. And that's kind of what we've seen through four games of this series. Yeah, and <laughs> it's hard to talk about this without talking about the Mike Budenholzer versus Eric Spolstra, if at all, right? Mm -hmm. Because you nailed it, you hit it on the head in regard to what Miami likes to do. Miami is going to run this two-man game with Bam Adebayo and one of its uh, great perimeter players. Like, Goran Dragic uh, was awesome in the first couple games of this series. Duncan Robinson in the dribble handoff games uh, game with Bam Adebayo has been ridiculous, even though like I feel like he's had a couple of games where he's not even necessarily living up to his shooting ability and they're still winning these games uh jimmy butler obviously has just taken over late because that guy is a force of will right now and you know there, there's just nothing you can do to stop jimmy whenever he's rolling but even the way that they 
utilize Duncan Robinson in off-ball sets. Like, it's little stuff like that where Mm -hmm. they'll just have Duncan, and Duncan just constantly sprints, right? And the threat of that sprint as opposed to someone just, like, taking a screen, jogging around it, and not necessarily putting pressure on the defense. The fact that Duncan constantly sprints, and they use these, like, little flare actions with Bam, and they use these little just like dribble handoffs that become so difficult to manage because Duncan has such a quick release and such a high release point being six foot seven. And then off of that, they run a bunch of crazy cutting action because you have to sell out as a defense to stop Duncan Robinson from getting that three point shot. They really use a lot of great secondary cutting action toward the basket off of those uh, little plays. Like the fact that it took, Milwaukee four games to adjust to this whenever I don't really think Miami is doing anything different than what we've seen in the mm-hmm. regular season is disconcerting to me because they finally did it in game four but the fact that it took them getting down 3-0 and losing Giannis to do so is uh it scares me going forward I think that's fair. Um, As you said, it doesn't feel like Miami's doing much differently. I don't even think Milwaukee's doing anything much differently in terms of defending Duncan Robinson. Um, They've had Chris Middleton kind of chase Duncan Robinson around. Uh, Wes Matthews has gotten some time. Dante DiVincenzo's gotten some time. And the fact that they still aren't super willing to switch just puts so much strain on those guys to stay connected. It's why Duncan Robinson himself hasn't had a, a great series. But you can just see how draining it is. They run that handoff with Bam. Um, whoever's tracking Duncan Robinson tracks over that screen. Duncan Robinson pump fakes, tosses it back to Bam, reverses action, and it's just two or three of those, and it gets Miami late in the clock, but it just drains so much energy from Milwaukee, and then, as you said, they have so many cutting actions off of that. And all it takes is one mistake on Milwaukee's end, especially since they're dropping most of the time, to open up a good look for Miami, and they've been hitting threes at a very high clip all series long. Yeah, that's 100% right. I do like the idea that... This lineup with George Hill, Eric Bledsoe, and Dante DiVincenzo, all three of those guys are so aggressive on the perimeter defensively that it just gave them more mobility to kind of chase, right? And that lineup had a lot of success yesterday defensively. Now, I think that part of the reason that lineup had a lot of success was that Miami just missed shots, right? Mm -hmm. But they forced... Miami into tougher shots. I like the idea of them using these three guards. I don't really think it had a ton to do with Brooke Lopez necessarily. I think it had to do with those three guards being able to chase around Miami and being more mobile. And it again goes back to the idea of the fact that why are they not just going small in the backcourt with Middleton and Giannis and actualizing Giannis offensively with spacing, but also actualizing what their defense can do in terms of switchability and in terms of being able to chase around these shooters with more mobility. Yeah, I I think part of that is, uh, as you mentioned, those three guards, uh, they did spend a lot of time kind of splitting the minutes with um, with Eric Bledsoe. Uh, It was kind of interesting to see Bud kind of finally take, put a little bit more leash on him. And I think that helped, especially with Dante DiVincenzo playing so well yesterday. But I agree with you. I'm actually surprised we haven't seen more of Milwaukee going small or at least super small. That was one of the concerns I had coming into the series because as much as Miami likes to run the half-court stuff and a lot of the screening actions, a lot of handoffs, I felt like a team that could switch a lot 
would bother that. And that combined with them not being a great defensive team, at least throughout the regular season, was a little bit concerning. That's why uh, the matchup against Toronto during exceeding games was huge because they put OG Ananobi on Bam Adebayo to kind of switch that handoff. And the offense just kind of died from there. And that's another reason why, looking ahead, if Miami is able to finish this series, they probably want to root for Toronto to pull things off because I think the wings that Boston has, they're a little speedier on top of having great wing scores on the other end. So I think that's a tougher matchup for them than Toronto would be. But that's that's just something that has concerned me, and that's definitely something you saw in Game 4. Well, <laughs> it depends on how much Nick Nurse is willing to go away from Marc Gasol because, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about this with Jay King, and, you know, the listeners will have heard this already. But I, I have some real concerns about Marc Gasol's presence in the playoffs right now uh his offense is great but every time boston attacks him in pick and roll it's just an open shot uh they're they're just so aggressively dropping and you can't really do that against boston because kemba walker can just go into those forward Mm -hmm. momentum pull up three pointers like it's nothing um but going back to this series Obviously, a lot of the attention is now going to move to Giannis and his status as to whether or not he's healthy and can he actually continue to make an impact. Did you see anything in the way that Milwaukee's offense operated that made it seem more natural, maybe is the way to put it, without Giannis? Like, it's it seemed to me that because Milwaukee – or Miami, I'm sorry – wasn't selling out to try and wall off Giannis every time that Milwaukee was a little bit more capable of just straight up spacing and getting shots that they were a little bit more comfortable with. And obviously Chris Middleton was just ridiculous yesterday, but Mm -hmm. like their offense ran a little bit better. It's not to say that they're better without Giannis, but it felt like their offense ran a little bit more smoothly to me yesterday. Uh, And, Again, like if you can't figure out how to use Giannis, that's on you as a coach, yeah. not on uh, Giannis or not on anything else. But I do think that they figured out how to run offense yesterday in a pretty real way. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me was that they played more at the pace that they wanted to play at. They played a little bit quicker. Like even some of the good options, the good actions they were running for Giannis to get him looks. Um, that little pin down underneath the basket to get him a free throw line touch, and he kind of attacks from there. It just takes so much time for that to set up. And Giannis has to survey the field, and then, you know, the Heat guys are cheating off of the guys in the corner. They're kind of sinking down to try to close off those gaps. So even if you get a a spin and a dunk from Giannis, you're taking 17, 18, 19 seconds to set that up. Yesterday, it's just high pick and roll and go. The quick pin down for Chris Middleton – um, late in the games, they were attacking all of Miami guards. If it was Goran Dragic, they kind of ran a little inverted pick and roll to try to get force that switch. If it was Tyler Hero, it was Duncan Robinson. And Middleton just kind of had his choice at picking it who he wanted to go at. And you're kind of swapping out Giannis, who obviously I mean, he's one of, if not the best player in basketball, swapping out for a guard. It's a clear talent gap there. But those guards kind of made Milwaukee play a little bit faster. And they attacked those gaps that Miami had in their defense and forced them into scramble situations. So it made it easier for Milwaukee to get good looks. Yeah, those 10 minutes that the three guards, Chris Middleton and Brooke Lopez, played yesterday, a 118 offensive rating and a 30 defensive rating. 
Uh, that is that is <laughs> staggering. That, that's obviously uh, the big run that they had to kind of get back into this game and make it uh, make it tight down the stretch. But their defense was much improved, and I guess that where I go next here is how does Miami adjust, and do they have to adjust, or can they just assume? They're going to win one of these three games if Giannis is out. Uh, and if Giannis is in, their strategy just is working. So why not change anything, right? Yeah, I think at least listening to the players um, talk about the game afterwards, it sounds a lot more like they need to play better more so than they need to play differently. Or yeah. more specifically, they need to play harder. Uh, that's the thing Bam Adebayo alluded to, Jay Crowder alluded to. Um, there were some missed opportunities there. Um, there seemed to be a little bit of a let up in terms of energy and kind of concerned me late in the game where they just, I mean, you have to credit Milwaukee's defense first, but also it felt like Miami was just kind of banging their head against the wall, trying to run the same stuff late instead of just kind of hunting what's there. Um, there was a possession late in the fourth quarter, uh, ended in a Jimmy Butler like floater that could have been a foul, but probably wasn't. Um, they were trying to set up uh, Jimmy Gorn pick and roll to kind of get George Hill into the action. But it was after a Chris Middleton miss, and you had Brooke Lopez in the right corner guarding Tyler Hero. So it was kind of odd that neither Goran Dragic or Jimmy Butler kind of hunted that matchup, try to force something and get downhill just to create a better look. They seemed very ingrained in kind of doing what they were, doing what got them there, but didn't really, I don't think they read the game particularly well late. I think removing Giannis kind of had them thinking on the fly. And once Milwaukee got some momentum defensively, shutting down some of their pet actions, they didn't really have an option to go to. I think a day off and looking at some film and kind of doing some solo searching, I think helps. And I would be surprised, especially if Giannis doesn't come back. I'd be surprised if Miami doesn't win one of the next three. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm anticipating Miami's going to win one of these next three games, if only because, well, it's really hard to come back <clears throat> from a 3-0 deficit, right? Uh, it's hard to win four straight games against any good team, let alone one that is filled with kind of 16 game players like Miami. And this is kind of what I want to close on here is just Miami's roster construction. Uh, I think it really sets itself out. It sets itself up well to compete in the playoffs. They have a switchable center who can also protect the rim. Bam out of bio. They have just a motherfucker and Jimmy Butler, right? <laughs> like that dude, is just never going to try. He's never going to give up uh, mm -hmm. in a substantial way. Uh, Jay Crowder and Andre Iguodala are wings that are uh, switchable, can do a lot of different things, guard a lot of different guys because of their strength and quickness defensively. Tyler Hero, I mean, that guy, I thought he played like shit yesterday for like mm -hmm. three and a half quarters and then makes those three killer shots late in that game. Uh, the one at the end of regulation and then the two in the overtime – I mean, Jesus Christ, that guy, like, doesn't feel pressure. Like, he, yeah, he isn't scared at all. That dude does not give a fuck about what's going on, and I love it unconditionally. And then Goran Dragic has played really well as a creative guard who knows his role and can get buckets whenever he needs to, but also just works really well within their offense. Uh, you know, Kelly Olenek, for as much as uh, we talk about these relatively uh, – you know, I don't want to say he's unathletic, but he has enough quickness to be able to like 
execute their defensive scheme and enough wherewithal to execute their defensive scheme. But having guys who can space above the break from three just opens up everything else for opposing or for an offensive team, uh, especially against a team like Milwaukee that plays such an aggressive drop. So I love the way that this roster is constructed. I mean, do we, do we see anything in terms of the way that Miami is built that is applicable to how teams build their rosters in the future? Um, I think the switchable nature of it is the biggest thing to take away. And then the sec, the spacing kind of comes second. I feel like everyone's kind of on the wave with more shooting is a good thing. But I think going more switch heavy, um, the Heat switched at a top five rate after the trade deadline once they got Andre Goddard and Jay Crowder in there. Uh, I think that really set them up for playoff success because they had problems at the point of attack all year long. They, they start the year as an aggressive drop team. Um, Kendrick Nunn had a solid first month, and then after that he was a disaster. Yeah. Goran Dragic, as hard as he competes, was still kind of a disaster. Um, Tyler Hero pretty solid off-ball defense, same with Duncan Robinson, but both of those guys kind of die on screens. So whenever teams ran high pick and roll, especially when you're looking at teams like Boston with Kimball Walker, um, they just kind of shit Miami in that way because they couldn't keep guys in front. So Miami switch, becoming a more switch-heavy team after the trade deadline, getting those reps in, really set them up for what they're seeing now. Um, the switching just kind of flattened out Indiana's offense, and they were already without some firepower. But their switching kind of flattened out that offense and made Indiana. I mean, it just kind of swallowed them up. Um, the switching has the switching again in, in combination of the digging that they're doing on Giannis drives just kind of makes Milwaukee play a little bit slower, which is why Game Four was a big thing that Milwaukee was able to pick up the pace a little bit. So I think more teams are going to realize that they're going to need to switch more often when you get late into these rounds because you just don't want to give good offensive teams um, any gaps to attack. So I think that's really going to be the big takeaway moving forward. Well, in regard to Miami, it's not even just like straight digging on Giannis drives. It's stunt digging, right? Like Mm -hmm. they're stunning toward the middle and then timing it perfectly to recover out onto shooters once Giannis realizes that there's a guy open, right? I think what he did better in game four before he got hurt, I mean, he played 11 minutes and had like 18 points, Mm -hmm. right? I think he figured out that what the instruction is, is to stunt dig. It's not to just straight up dig and realize that even whenever they stunt, they're probably going right back after the shooters. So don't necessarily give the ball up immediately. See how the second defender responds and then go from there. Right. So I think that going forward, having more mobile defenders like I don't even know that it's necessarily switching right like I think it's just having more guys who can move their feet and who can perform a variety of roles Mm -hmm. uh, and do so with length like the way Miami has built this roster is like making me almost rethink like centers in this year's NBA draft in like a substantial way Uh, like I am someone who has James Wiseman at like number four on my board and I like James Wiseman. I think like his skill set has gone drastically underrated. Mm-hmm. But you basically have to play drop coverage with him. And the more that I watch these teams struggle that play drop coverage, the more concerned I am about not having enough mobility and not having enough 
just not have enough versatility defensively because these teams that play drop, like whenever that big is on the court, they almost always have to drop. Like there's just, there's nothing, there's no surprise. The, the mm-hmm. opposing offense is not going to be surprised by what you're doing. It's just too easy to read almost, I think. Yeah, I think teams have become a lot smarter at attacking that. Um, I feel, uh, If you're going to play a drop, you have to basically you have to be set up like Milwaukee where you have Eric Bledsoe, who's probably the best screener boarder in the league. Chris right. Middleton's really good at it. Dante DiVincenzo. Like, that just puts so much strain on your perimeter guys that you you have to go towards a more mobile center, I feel like. Right. And the other thing I've been thinking about in regard to this, because I've been thinking about a lot in regard to Minnesota, is you almost have to have just like a freak show backside, weak side rim protector like Giannis. Because you have to be able to not play such an aggressive drop where you're dropping back to like 10 feet away from the rim. You have to be able to at least like step out like 16, 17 feet. And then Mm -hmm. feel like even if you get beat, you have Giannis coming over from the weak side to contest the rim. Like, I think that that is arguably the most important part of building this scheme. Like, you can do so as long as you have a big center with long arms and has, like, relative short area quickness, right? Like, those guys aren't that hard to find anymore, frankly. Like, guys like Giannis, guys like, like, I think Bam Adebayo would be really good. Mm -hmm. And a scheme like that is like the backside, weak side rim protector. Those guys are harder to find. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's where like playing a drop kind of breaks down whenever you're trying to figure out how to build your team. Yeah. And I think that's kind of just not necessarily a drop, but that's also what kind of concerns me about Denver because they, they can't really drop with Jokic, So they play him higher up yep. and that puts a lot of strain on Paul Millsap to be that kind of backline guy. Right. And now that Millsap has kind of slowed down like 5%, it, just really tank their defense, especially in the first round against Utah. Yep. No, I think that's 100% right. At some point, I'm going to talk about the Denver Clippers series, but, like, I haven't even been able to watch those games live. Like, and by haven't been able to, I don't mean that, like, I was doing something else. I, like, chose not to watch those games live <laughs> because, like, I just don't, like, I care because I care about the NBA, but... I just don't see a world where that's like more than a six game series. That's like hyper competitive, you know, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe that's a flaw in my part. Maybe I'm just a bad NBA fan. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's the key here. Uh, Nikias, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what you've got going on. You can catch me at basketballnews.com. That's the new venture. Uh, first full time job. So I will obviously a little bit excited for that. Um, I have some, I got to speak to Arika Gumbawale of the Dallas Wings on Thursday, so I'll have a piece up on her pretty soon. Um, other than that, follow my Twitter at NikaiasNBA, N-E-K-I-A-S-N-B-A. Um, I'll be tweeting out some basketball things, um, my usual puns, uh, so just follow me for that. Nikaias is the best, folks. Please go follow him. He is super fun. He does a great job covering Miami Heat and the NBA as a whole. We'll be back here momentarily with Reed Forgrave, who is going to tell us a little bit about the book he just wrote, uh, which is a pretty, uh, pretty stunning story. Uh, 
All right, and we're back here on the Game Theory Podcast. It is my privilege to bring back to the show Reed Forgrave. Reed, from the Star Tribune in Minneapolis right now, but that's not the reason that we're having him on. Reed just wrote a really, really great book that uh, I wanted to give him a chance to talk about, and I kind of wanted to uh, just kind of catch up with Reed, to be honest, because why wouldn't we just catch up in this circumstance? So, Reed. How you doing, man? Brother, uh, it's 2020, so I'm giving myself a C plus for this year, uh, which is, uh, I think, doing well. C's really get degrees in 2020. Uh, I'm all right, man. Like, usually we're, uh, usually when I come on here, we're talking hoops. You're telling me why Lamella Ball ain't everything I hope he's going to be for my Minnesota Timberwolves, um, all that stuff, but I'm, I'm thrilled that you had me on to talk about uh this book because it's it's been consuming a lot of my brain space for gosh like more than four years now is really when when this thing really got started so i think reed is probably one of my favorite writers in regard to a feature writer who can get to the core of a subject and who can really understand their motivations and understand who they are as people so a, I have not read your book, you know, just to be real about it. What? I believe it comes out tomorrow, right? Out tomorrow, out on Tuesday, September 8th, purposely two days before NFL season, which appears that it's going to go off, uh, at least start as scheduled. And I want to just kind of give you the floor to explain what the book is about, because it is obviously about a difficult subject in regard to CTE and some of the uh, trauma that we put youth football players through uh, due to the culture surrounding football. Yeah. So thank you. Uh, I'll take the floor. Just stop me in about 20 minutes. Uh, I'll just have a monologue. <laughs> you know how I can talk, brother. You better watch out when you give me the floor. Um, yeah, so this... we, we both can. It's a problem. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, this book is called, it's called Love Zach. Uh, and it's about a young man named Zach Easter from small town, Iowa. Uh, subtitle is small town football and the life and death of an American boy. Uh, you can tell that this is not the feel good book of the year. This is, uh, it's heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking story. And I, I wrote 288 pages about a young man that I never met. The first I ever heard the name Zach Easter was in his obituary. Uh, I used to work for a newspaper called the Des Moines Register, Des Moines, Iowa, lived in Iowa for a decade, know Iowa really well. And a friend, shortly after I moved up to Minneapolis, a friend uh, passed on this obituary and said, hey, you should check this out. And it's like, you know, it's it's about a 24-year-old man who committed suicide. This guy who seemed to have the whole world in front of him, Uh, good looking. He was in the Iowa National Guard, was, was... voted soldier of the year in the Iowa National Guard, had just graduated from college with honors. Um, a really dynamic young man. Think of him as like the the sort of crazy guy next door who's just a little bit reckless and you see him growing up, but he's always fun-loving. His parents called him, the, the nickname that he had when he was growing up was he was named after Odie, the, uh, that friendly character from Garfield who everyone just loved. And so like, any obituary about a 24-year-old with so much potential. It's heartbreaking. But what was most heartbreaking and what really like spurred me to be like, wow, there is something to this story. The sixth paragraph of his, of his obituary is dedicated to trying to 
basically make meaning of his life and his death. And I'm just going to read you just a few sentences from his obituary. It says, Zach was a selfless person. His last wish was to make sure that no one else has to struggle from head trauma like he did. It is important to Zach to tell his story about CTE, a disease he attempted to manage for years. And this goes on telling about his uh, his symptoms and how he dealt with it, the migraines, what he called brain tremors, slurred speech, uh, dementia. And this is in a 24-year-old young man who played football through high school, third grade through his senior year of high school. He was a reckless player. He led with his head. Uh, coaches would tell him not to. He'd do it anyway. He was undersized, but he had the perfect mentality for football. It's like a coach's dream. But he also suffered numerous concussions, at least a half dozen diagnosed concussions uh, throughout his childhood, and almost certainly more than that. Um, his parents his parents are just courageous characters in this book. They've been through hell and back, right? And they graciously turned over Zach's journals to me, uh, this 39-page autobiography that Zach wrote on his personal computer that details his struggles with concussions, with CTE. Uh, and I got a bunch of text messages with his girlfriend, who's one of the heroes of this story. So what I think makes this story unique, first of all, it's a story about this young man, Zach Easter. And it's a firsthand account of his downward spiral. Uh, and I think first and foremost, and I keep reminding myself, because, you know, you do these book tour things and you talk about high-minded things. What is this book really about? What does it say about America? And I, says, I think it says a lot about America, frankly. It's, it's, it, it's a book about sports, but it's not a sports book. To me, it's a book about, it's about parenting, right? It's about masculinity. It's about what it means to be a man in America. It's about do we wrap our kids in bubble wrap to keep them perfectly safe? Uh, or how much risk we want our kids to go through. I really think it's like about what we value as a country. Um, and I really dive into some of the sociological aspects of football and how much we love violence and why we love violence. Um, but at its core, this is a tragic story about a young man who wants his life and his death to have meaning. Those were literally his dying words before he committed suicide he penned a suicide letter that, that, that said, please spread my story. So uh, it, it is a heartbreaking story about a young man. And I think it's, it's not an anti-football book. It's not a pro-football book. No matter how you feel about football, I hope it challenges how you feel about football. Uh, because football is, I don't know where you fall on the football continuum, Sam. But like, yeah. I love football. It's my favorite sport to watch just as a fan sit back on you know, Sunday afternoons and watch a, watch the Minnesota Vikings get wrecked uh, and break your heart. It's it's a sport where I think you learn a lot about life and it's a sport that has brought a lot of destruction and frankly this the science around concussions around subconcussive hits around traumatic brain injuries around the, the head impact of sports it's very much in its infancy like think of it as cancer in the 1950s or 60s. There's a lot of resources being dedicated toward this. But, you know, when I went to a brain conference, uh, a conference on traumatic brain injury at the University of North Carolina, I swear the phrase I heard most by all these uh, physical trainers and neurosurgeons and people who are way smarter than me, which I know is really hard to get wrap your brain around, Sam, but they, they were all smarter than me. Stunner. Um, 
But the phrase the phrase I heard most was the infancy of the science. So even yeah. though this, I feel like this, the story of CTE and concussions and football, and, and frankly just all contact sports, has somewhat receded over the past year or two. Um, it's going to be a story that is going to be with us uh, for decades before this thing is quote unquote solved. And something that parents, uh, you know, I look at my myself and my wife. We have two boys, uh, age four and almost eight. And this is something that we're going to have to think about without knowing the true answers uh, for at least one more generation, I believe. Yeah, you know, so how you and I know each other as well as we do is that, you know, you we both grew up in Pittsburgh. We both grew up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. And you're like a decade older than I am. I just had to throw that out there. Just want to be clear. Uh, Reed is old. Hurting uh, back, but you know th- that's kind of how we cultivated our relationship. And there's obviously, as I'm sure you're aware, having grown up, and we haven't really talked about this before, but like there is a pervasive football culture in Pittsburgh surrounding the Steelers, surrounding youth football. Like football is so important to the life. And like the just livelihood of Yinzers that like, and I, I didn't really like totally buy into all of that. Like maybe, you know, maybe like the 10 years that separate us, I'm just going to keep them back to those 10 years, but like <laughs> maybe the 10 years that separated us, like there was like a very small cultural shift in regard to the way that we think about football. Cause like I stopped playing football when I was in sixth grade or so because I just didn't like fucking hitting people and like getting hit. Right. Like just being real about it. Right. Uh, but I still love watching football. Like I still love and enjoy sitting down on a Sunday and like watching the Packers with my wife. Right. Like, I still am going to, and already have, drafted two fantasy football leagues, right? (laughs) So the way that we think about football and the way that we interact with this sport that kills a large number of its participants is hard to... It's hard to kind of wrap your head around, but we continue to do it and I am complicit in continuing to do it, right? Like trying to, trying to navigate that minefield of issues is difficult because I'm not going to stop watching football from reading your book. And I don't think you want me to stop watching football after reading your book, but your book is going to be something that. I would imagine at least again, having not read it that like you said, makes you think twice about the way that we raise children and the way that we discuss this within American society. I mean, Americans, we have a like remarkable ability to compartmentalize our morality, right? Like, I think people who are football fans would look at this book and just, just hear that it's about, to some extent, it's about concussions in football and just be like, I don't want to read that. 
and a significant portion of this book is actually dedicated to the great things that football has has brought America. Like like if you look at the rise of football, it very much mirrors and contributes to America becoming a a world superpower. Uh, football developed after the Civil War and seen as sort of a proving ground for men and. When we look at football now, like where, where you and I are from, I think it is no coincidence that the Mike Webster story and the Bennett O'Malley story and that the remarkable movie uh, with Mil- Will Smith that was based on an article by the wonderful G- Jean Marie Laskus uh, in GQ magazine, which she turned into a book. Uh, it is not a coincidence that it took place in Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh is, there's so much of this steel city, this 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 hard scrabble town that is devoted to this sport and, and they reflect each other. So look, football's a different sport right now than it was a generation ago, even in the 1990s. You don't have ESPN segments saying you he just got jacked up. You don't have these NFL films uh that come out saying bone crunching hits. Uh but you we still have a culture that worships that violence. Like, violence isn't a bug of football. Like, it is it is, it is, is part and par- parcel of the sport. If, if it suddenly became, like, the National Flag Football League, you think you're going to get 110 million people watching Super Bowl Sunday? I don't think so. Uh, and yet, look, there, there, are some, there are some very real parts of football that I think are important to developing that traditional vision of masculinity. I know sometimes people will call that toxic masculinity. I think there is a blurry line between the two. But the idea of fighting through pain, of, of being able to do something as a team and do something greater than you ever thought you you could, like there are great life lessons in it. And it's one thing when you're fighting through the pain of a sprained ankle. It's another thing when you're fighting through the pain of a concussion that is like the brain, right? Like what makes us human? So... Look, we can we could spend the next two hours ripping on Roger Goodell, and there would probably be good reason to do that. But if you do look, I do think the NFL has look. They they went through an entire age of denialism when it had to do with concussions and CTE. But I think they right now take this very seriously as almost an existential threat to the league, to the sport, right. and realize they have to legislate out those big destructive hits out of the game. Um, there's, a, there's, there's a lot going on here uh, that, that I think says a lot about America and says a lot about how we parent, how we raise our children, what we want the vision of an American man to be. Uh, and I think there's a wide swath of America, frankly, the, the part of America that Zach Easter is from is rural Midwestern America. And they still want their men to be tough. They want their men to be able to power through things. But again, it's different, man, when we're talking about powering through a concussion. And the only way to get over something like that is to have the proper rest and come back uh, when the time is right. Yeah, and I don't think that the development of mental fortitude is a bad thing. You know, like you said, it's a blurry line in regard to, like, toxic masculinity and the idea of what masculinity is and the idea of 
fighting through adversity is not a masculine topic. It's a human topic. You know, men, women, transgender people fight through adversity every day. And I think that one way that people, specifically men in this country, learn to fight through that adversity is through sport and football is one of those activities right like the sense of community and the sense of figuring out how to overcome is very real the goal setting that comes with football is very real like it's just very easy to wrap your mind around Like the scoreboard, for instance, as you're, you know, between eight and 18 years old, like figuring out how to overcome to the point where you can defeat the other team on the scoreboard is a valuable life lesson. And this, you know, has to do with other sports as well. Like it's an easy thing to wrap your head around. And I think that it helps with the development of fighting through adversity and being able to be a strong independent person that also works well within a team you build community skills there's also frankly the aspirational aspect of football where you know people from small town Iowa from South Carolina from Alabama from rural parts of California even right like these people don't always have the same opportunities as I do living in the middle of fucking Hollywood or like you do living in like a nice suburb in Minneapolis. Right. Like we're in the city, bro. We're in the city. Don't call. Oh, you're in the city now. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, brother. (laughs) Wow. But there is an aspirational aspect to this that like we can help lift our family up through football and there's also the racial component of this where 70 percent of the nfl right now is currently black which means we have a genuine wealth gap in this country in regard to white people versus people of color like the wealth gets redistributed in part through football so football in and of itself is not a bad thing, which is why I think that it's difficult to like the dissonance between the fact that the, the, like people essentially kill themselves playing football and the fact that it brings so much good to the table. It's a very difficult topic to broach. And I'm glad that you wrote this book because I think that you're delicate enough and smart enough to be able to discuss it in a manner that is interesting. There's, I think there's a lot of nuance to it, right? Like, and I don't think America deals with nuance particularly well in 2020. Um, If you would ask Brenda Easter, this question that I'm about to ask you, I know how she would answer. And the question is, Sam, do you believe that a young man, uh, you know, a, a 14 to 18 year old boy can learn the same life lessons through track and field, or perhaps more appropriately for this podcast, through basketball, as they can learn through football. 
Brenda Easter would say, absolutely. Uh, they're sports. You learn teamwork. You learn to battle through that adversity. Part of me, and look, full disclosure, I did not play football growing up in any more intense version than backyard. Uh, I just wasn't big enough, you know, and I was a little too timid as a kid. I always looked up to people who did play football. I always wanted to. I just didn't have what it took. But if you'd ask Brenda Easter, she'd say, you get the exact same experience, the same life experience with other sports. Go play golf. Go play track and field. Part of me disagrees with that because football, the mere like fact of going through physical pain, I think, not just for boys, but for anyone. There's something, there's a powerful life lesson to be learned that, hey, I can get knocked down and I can get back up. And if you look at football, there's no sport other than maybe boxing. We don't even get into boxing, but like it's more physically scary than football. Like you look at the way that old military generals would talk about football, the way that you know, Teddy Roosevelt actually plays a huge part in this book and in the development of football as America's sport. And he, what he said at one point when football was really under attack in the early 1900s, uh, he has this great phrase where he's like, I don't want uh, our young men to grow up to be mollycoddles. Sam, I want you to get the phrase mollycoddle in your next story at The Athletic. But I think there's something, like, I, I know physical pain 100 years later isn't what it meant back in the early 1900s when we really had to use our bodies more. Uh, you know, we can sit in front of a computer all day, frankly, and uh, and make a good living. And uh, but but I do think there's something big that's learned. Like I can get knocked down, and I can get back up. And I'm not sure. I'm curious what you think. Do you get that same experience? That same life experience? That same camaraderie experience? That same entire community comes together over one silly Friday night football game in rural Texas? Do you get that same experience from track and field? basketball i don't think you do i think you get it and i think you can get it what i think is more interesting about football as something very strange just happened in the background uh yeah what was that man for for a little bit of insight uh we are recording out on the roof today because uh my <laughs> wife decided to have a little bit of sleep in which is great she deserves it but where I think that football is particularly interesting in that regard is teamwork and the sense of community that develops through it. Like there are 11 players on a team working like in synchronicity yeah. in order to make something positive happen. And if someone breaks down, it changes like it, it doesn't work typically. Right. So that aspect of developing just team skills and sharing, I think is incredibly important. And I think that you don't really get it in like a in a sport like basketball where one player can dominate the yeah. play as much as or, or, I mean, I any other sport more, or hockey. Right. I think you get it more in, in a basketball than you get in the sport that I grew up playing was baseball. Which is, I guess, it's a team sport. Baseball's all but a it's bunch really of really just a bunch of like discrete individual interactions that yep. kind of lump together, right? Um, but yeah, man, I, I I completely agree. Like that synchronicity, the fact that 
you know, you send a tennis team to go compete at the school next door and, you know, a bunch of parents are driving them. You send a football team and it's like three buses with like 70 players and trainers and cheerleaders. And you got a whole caravan of people. Like the sheer numbers of this, I, I, I think, brings something to a community that it's hard for, you know, any other sport other than maybe like basketball in Indiana uh, to, to, to fully replicate. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, I think that that aspect is interesting. I don't know that like the physicality of having to overcome like physical pain. Like I, I'm not someone that really thinks that that's like a necessity, right? But the team building stuff is interesting to me. And like, I guess that maybe you could do so in a different manner but i like when it comes to football like blocking is the best part of team is of that like teamwork right like it's the most important part of not having someone break down right uh or else a play falls off its rails so it's hard i think it's a difficult conversation um and, and i don't think football is inherently evil but we do need to really fix the way that or at least like come up with some way to minimize the brain trauma at least i am insanely curious if i had a sports crystal ball aside from taking it to vegas i would also like look a generation down the road and see what football looks like because if like if scientific studies come out that make this even scarier to put your kids in this uh versus if if there is a saliva test that can be administered on the sideline right after a big hit to say, Hey, look, you just had a concussion. You're out like something that is definitive. Um, or if science realizes, Hey, these sub concussive hits, which to me are even scarier than those big rocking hits. Like the fact that Mike Webster as a Steelers center, just banging his head 60, 70 times a game. Um, I'm really curious where science leads us and where we lead as a society. Will this sport a generation from now be the same? Could it be more violent? Could it be like, you know, some version of boxing where it's more of a, uh, a niche sport, but it still retains that core of violence, almost like a gladiatorialism. Uh, or does it become just like, a little bit less physical of a sport. I, I have no idea. I'm I'm rooting for football to be safer uh, because I, I I thoroughly enjoy everything this sport gives me. And I tell you what, coming out with this book, uh, it does often make me feel like a hypocrite for being really excited for Thursday night opening night in the NFL. Man, I'm going to be down there watching it, probably with my four year old son right next to me. Go read and go buy Love Zach, which is read Four Graves' new book that comes out on Tuesday. Read, uh, tell the people what kind of information that they need in order to go yeah, buy you, a book. You can you can buy it literally anywhere, books or audiobooks. Can you believe that someone actually read my book for nine hours on a, on an audiobook? You can what buy a mistake it anywhere that books was. are sold, but it's called Love Zach, Small Town Football and the Life and Death of an American Boy. And I have a I have this virtual book tour coming up. So if you have any interest on wanting to ask me questions, go to readforgrave.com, which my wife lovely made because you know my uh, 
my my tech skills are, 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 are next to nothing. But we have tour dates up there. So thanks for having me on, Sammy. It's great talking with you. That's been Reed Forgrave. He's great. Uh, I have read, I think the number is like 15 books since quarantine started. Uh, right now I'm reading one on like the election process and issues that have come up in the American election process before. Uh, I believe it's called Ballot Battles. Uh, Love Zach will be the next one that I read. So uh, please uh, go check out Reed's book. Uh, I am really, really excited that he got a chance to write this. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We'll be back on Wednesday or Thursday with more. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.